1: Welcome everyone to another episode of the State of Love and Trust of America. <laughs> I'm one of your two hosts, Jason Carapesi, alongside me, as always is Paul Gillieri. And with us from the State of America podcast are
2: David and Ian.
1: Wow. We did it.
2: I
3: know we did. Two
1: it. states. It's like the UN of of rock and roll. <laughs> <laughs> we <laughs> each we each have um I would say a good quarter of the country just like we're, we're like the we're like the um the representatives of like southern rock and roll and then northwestern rock and roll we've got half the country covered I think that's true although
2: if we are the un of rock and roll rock and rolls in trouble but uh, I
1: disagree <laughs> I think we're crushing it <laughs> um welcome everybody we We are happy that you are here, and um just the tiniest bit of housekeeping to get out of there beforehand. You've got one week, one week to go before the end of our um giveaway our our, our feed, the algorithm giveaway. I call it the um the Paul Gillary open where you just you 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 feed the algorithm, you write the review, you 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 submit a a, 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 a hopefully a five star. Um, rating, and if we uh, if we happen to be tickled by your review, then we will send moved, you a moved,
3: c- Jason. Moved profoundly, moved, tickled, moved. Know. <laughs> whatever,
1: whatever works. We'll come to an accord, Paul and I. We'll come to an accord, and we will uh, will choose a winner of that free copy of Stephen Hines' book, Long Road. And we must thank uh, Ian and David for uh, for allowing us to do that.
3: Yes. And I want to personally on air thank Ian and David for this amazing special gift that they sent uh, vinyl what copy you got the guy? giveaway. Oh, it's beautiful. Oh. It's actually still in the box. Uh, I could take it out, but it took me 15 minutes to slip it back in there with the bubble wrap. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we're going to leave the Pearl Jam vinyl in there. And I'm going to share the stickers, the State of America stickers that I got, which are. Uh, yes. Equally as satisfying a reward. So a a, a humble debt of gratitude I owe to you two gentlemen. So thank you.
2: Hey man, it's the least we could do. You guys are always great to us. So
3: we got to be great to you. It's a great day to be great gents. Let's get into this. (laughs) It's a great
1: day to be great. Well, um, yes. Thank you to anybody who's already left a review. And if you'd like to do, uh, give us one, go for it. You'll be entered. And anybody who's a patron, we thank you helping us keep this thing afloat. And there you go. Okay. So, Why are our friends from the state of America here? Well, both bands have arguably two of the greatest debut records of memory. And there is, I mentioned Stephen Hyden in his book, Long Road. He is a a rock and roll a historian maybe writer guy and he writes a ton of stuff he's written books obviously and he wrote an article on uprocks uh just a few weeks back on his opinion of the 100 best debut albums of all time a few bones to pick from my point of view but he's got some great takes as well and i wanted to say you know what we've got our friends in state of morca black rose great debut album let's talk about debut albums and where these two albums 10 and shake your moneymaker rink. So we're going to get into that before we do. I do want to just um, talk about one quick thing. Topically, if you're listening to this in the future, uh, you'll be like, "Um, let's move on. And you can, you can just go ahead and skip ahead, but we're going to talk quickly about Josh freeze joining the Foo Fighters. uh, I believe just in a touring capacity, but nevertheless, he is a new quote unquote Foo Fighter. If you watch the live stream Recently, um, they played some new songs with him, some old songs. It sounded pretty good. Um, I'm going to read his CV real quick for those who don't know. Um, he grew up alongside Taylor Hawkins in Orange County. He played in a top 40 band at Disneyland at the age of 12. He dropped out of high school to play professionally. He made a solo record in... I uh, made a couple, but in 2000, he made one with Stone Gossard on it. Um, he co-wrote, I bet you didn't know this, he co-wrote the song Chinese Democracy with Axl Rose. Did you know that? No. Co-wrote it.
3: I did not know that.
1: Accomplished drummer who's played as a proper member of a session drummer for or a touring drummer for, among many others, the Vandals, Devo, The Offspring, A Perfect Circle, The Replacements, Paramore, Nine Inch Nails, Sting, like I said, many, many more. He's been on 400 records. I was saying it months ago that I thought it'd be Josh. It is Josh. What do you guys think of this?
0: I You weren't the only one that said that. There's a lot of people saying that, uh, but you did stick to your guns the whole time. Uh, I knew that Matt Cameron thing wasn't going to work. I mean, there's no way he drums for three of the big four, uh, not three of the big four, but drums with um, <laughs> yeah. Dave Grohl. Um, I just, I don't know. I didn't see it. I know they're buddies, but Ah, uh, Josh. I remember he was in Guns N' Roses for like two years. Is that mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So uh, I think he actually played some shows with them. Uh, maybe when they went down to Rio or whatever. But yeah, I'm 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 happy for him, but also it's kind of like replacing Derek Jeter at shortstop for the Yankees. Um, a lot of pressure on him. So we'll see.
3: Luckily, they were friends growing up. Yeah. So David, I got a question for you. Mm-hmm. When you think about the trajectory of a band like Smashing Pumpkins? Um, and you start seeing how band member changes, it, it really just kind of becomes a, uh, a kind of a, a solo endeavor at, at some point. Do you think Foo Fighters will evolve along a similar trajectory where eventually it's just kind of a Dave Grohl passion project just by another name or, or is there going to be?
0: No, I stuff? think like you look at like how long Pat's been with him and Chris Shefflett's been with him no. and and Nate, I think like, if you look at how they responded to this, it was very much family, a family thing. And yeah. uh, I feel like Dave Roll's a very loyal person. Yeah. The people that are loyal to him and he's loyal back and they've all just got too much skin in the game. And if you get to where you're, tra- you're swapping out that many members, you're not going to sound the same. And, yeah. th- you know, I'm, I'm admittedly just an average Foo Fighters fan. It's weird. Right before he died, it's actually when I really started getting into them more. But I just think they have a sound now. I know they rotated a lot of members because I've watched that documentary several times that they made. Oh, they're rotating. Forth? Yeah, they were rotating yeah. people in and out there for a while. But I just think as long as this group's been with him now, there's no reason to change the rest of it up. And I'm sure it's a great payday for for all of those guys. Yeah,
3: I think that's a good call. You know, I, I mean. Somebody like Dave, but my my one and only like real interaction with Dave Grohl uh, living here in Studio City in LA. We have a, a little little community in this Colfax Meadows neighborhood that I live in, and every Fourth of July, everybody gets together for this this big block party, and it brings out the whole neighborhood, and like the fire trucks come, and I'll never forget the first year that we did this, this about twelve years ago or so, not about ten years ago. Dave Grohl showed up in his van, <laughs> and all the kids hopped into the back of the van. And the fire trucks and the the police motorcade, like they walked, they they, they drove basically at a snail's pace around the neighborhood with the kids in the back of Dave Grohl's van. And it it was just an amazing sight to see. Um, And I just remember thinking to myself, wow, man, like of all the things that this guy could be spending his 4th of July doing, this is pretty cool. So I've always uh, had Dave in in high regard when I was able to kind of see that side of him. Uh, but I agree with you. I, I I think that you make a salient point about you know this band kind of really having all skin in the game, and I, I could see this being a, a new chapter, but not necessarily one that uh, you know marks the the downswing of what this band could continue to to produce. So,
1: Ian, do you think um, you know Dave recorded the drums for this new record they're putting out? do you think that's kind of what it's going to be now going forward where he just, he writes the drum parts, he records them and then they bring in Josh to record. Or do you think Josh will eventually, you know, be, become part of it? It's hard to say because I mean, you know, Dave's
2: relationship with, with Taylor obviously was so close and he might be guarded about letting anybody else play drums. And of course he's a very competent drummer. You know, there's no question on that, but also, so is was, uh, Mr. Freeze. You know what I mean? He's a, uh, his resume—you just read it off it's as long as your arm. So you know it's it's it'd be hard not to let him participate. You know.
1: Well, yeah, I, I think I think it's the right choice considering, obviously, his skill set and his proximity to Taylor and the band. Um, you know, you brought up family, and I think that they view him as kind of that guy. And you know, he had dates booked with Danny Elfman. He had dates booked, I think, with Devo as well later in the year he just like i'm 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 canceling all those so i can play with these guys so it feels like this is like a you know he was with with the perfect circle for 13 years so Mm -hmm. it's not like he's he's just a hired gun kind of guy He was with offspring on and off for like a decade i think he recorded on three of the records um from Mm -hmm. 2000 on so he does commit to to bands in a sense he might pull triple duty but he will be a part of the band i mean look at matt cameron he was he was doing Soundgarden and Prodium for a number of years there mm. uh, when they regrouped. So I like it. I think it's a smooth choice. I watched the uh, the live stream. He fucking crushed. I don't know how he has the energy at 50 years old. He, he, he mashes those drums, um, doing some double bass shit that I was like, bro, you're 50. How are you doing that? Um, <laughs> so I'm excited for them to go out on the road um, and see them at some point. But anyway, I just wanted to get that out of the way since we're all... Music heads here of a certain age. So anyways, let's get to what we want to talk about um, with you boys. And that is debut records. And I'm going to pose this first question to kind of set the table. And that is, what makes a great debut? David, what do you think?
0: All right. Judging by his list, um, Stephen Hyden's list, one of the criteria he takes into effect, I think, is influence down the road. Mm Mm-hmm. So you have to take that in in into consideration but for me it's about the songs not necessarily the influence cuz some of these people that are on this list were not one and done but kind of one and, and forgotten about mm-hmm. I, I just think it has to be great songs and you know you hear you hear people talk a lot of time I had my, an entire lifetime to write my first album and a year to write my second album I personally, most of the bands that I really like, their debut album is not my favorite, and I'm kind of in the minority on that. But man, you got to have the songs. It doesn't. It doesn't hurt to be groundbreaking or the forefront of a movement. Which, like, um, obviously, most people seem to think. The common person thinks um, Nevermind was Nirvana's debut album, but we all know that it wasn't. Mm-hmm. But obviously. That uh, uh, an album like that that kind of kicks doors down, or like Appetite for Destruction, that wasn't hair metal, but it wasn't not hair metal. It was kind of in between, and was more of just a a straight up hard rock album. Came that came out at a time when everything else was just basically, you know, Poison and Warrant and Trickster and that kind of stuff. So I also take that into account as well. Ian, what do you think? I I mean, a lot of it has to do with influence, but it's just.
2: It's kind of like your introduction to the band in a way, and you know, in the, in the case of a lot of bands, the debut, like David said, is not necessarily my favorite, but it often is a very, very strong record because they've had time to to hone it and and perfect their craft and work on those songs for sometimes you know several years before the record comes out. But it's it's just it's usually the one that casually the most people associate with and then the people that kind of stick with the band follow their trajectory and you know as david touched on too a lot of your favorite records by um these bands come later like my favorite pearl jam record for example is yield uh, that's you know that's four in but you know so and uh, even with the black crows my my favorite record is their fourth record maybe i just like fourth records maybe that's me well he, yield, yield is
1: their fifth I don't, want, I don't want to put you on there but. oh i'm sorry
2: right. yeah i was doing the math in my head
1: <laughs> It's four after, four after. All right. Oh, well, now I just sound stupid. No, no it's fine. <laughs> oh, no. Um, the the debut, is it, is it? where do you land? Is it just purely what the songs are and grading the songs? Or is it like it's got to change the game? It's got to, you know, how, how many hits does it need, does it need to have? Or, or does it have to have any hits? Is it consistency? Like, what is it to you?
2: I, I always see kind of almost a debut record kind of like being its own little mini greatest hits album. A lot of the, the, the debut records you see people mention and focus on and that show up on lists like Stephen Hyden's are, are records like that. And, you know, to a degree, shake your money makers like that. 10 is quite, quite like that. You know, the car's first album, you know, there's a lot of greatest example
0: to... is the first Boston album. Every song. Oh it's a the radio. banger from front to mm. back.
2: Yeah. yeah, exactly. So that, that has a lot to do with it too. It's, it's kind of like its own, representation of the greatest hits of the band before they actually have enough albums to have a greatest hits.
1: Paul, is it, is it handicapped? Because as the, as the guy said, it's, you've had a lifetime to write the songs.
3: Uh, well, I mean, I think David makes a good point in the sense that there, there is that extra window of time to slowly or even quickly, depending on when you started composing, it put something together. Uh, you don't have a label saying, okay, you got to punch something out in X amount of time. Uh, I do think, though, that the, the songs for sure are what make a great debut. But for me, when I think about the, the greatest debuts of all time, it's hard for me to not separate that with or from, I should say, uh, the introduction of a presence. Meaning, yes, when, when I I'm like, here's an example of what I think is one of the the, the greatest debut records of all time. Um, and influence is a big piece here too, mm-hmm. right? I mean, "Shake Your Money Maker" is named after No More James song. Um, so you, you you can see that there's there's definitely kind of like uh, shades of the different types of genres and, and bands that kind of help form and shape the band that creates a debut. But when I just think of of the concept of of a debut, um, Montrose was released in October of 1973. Now when Montrose came out, I mean uh, at the time, you know, I, I don't think it was necessarily seen as something that was going to be a big deal uh you know you, you you had a uh a guitarist ronnie montrose who decided he was going to start his own band and he basically was a session musician for you know other groups like he played with uh van morrison and, and some other other names at the time in the early 70s but <clears throat> this album comes out and it's like okay well you know what's the biggest band in the world at the time 1974 right i mean it's all about like they. That's the peak Zeppelin at this point in time, but <clears throat> Montrose drops this album, and no one really thinks that it's going to be a big deal. But it ends up being this really, really quiet hit that slowly becomes a louder and louder and louder hit to the point where it's kind of viewed as like this this groundbreaking American metal rock album, um, or you know, as as one critic dubbed it, America's answer to Led Zeppelin. But what a lot of people forget who aren't fans of, of this album um, is that it was the debut of Sammy Hagar.
4: <laughs> mm, and, you
3: know, Sammy yeah. would become uh, kind of, you know, the face of uh, Van Halen at a later point in his career. But Sammy's an iconic voice. You know, Eddie Vedder is, is an iconic voice. You know what I mean? Like the, there's something about an introduction to a presence that you, it's, 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 it's it's inextricably linked to a moment of time in your life where you're like, I don't remember the first time I heard that voice. I remember the first time I saw the image of that guitar player. Or I remember the first time I heard or saw this video, right, on MTV, depending on how far we want to date ourselves. And it, <clears throat> so to me, I think there's something about presence that really, really kind of defines what makes a debut album iconic, what makes it great. And it's usually associated with particular member of a group or a group dynamic, you know, you know, when when you think of a band like Kiss, it's like, imagine the first time you ever saw Kiss play back then, you know, like you just see these, these outfits and, and this, uh, this presence, you know, and it's like, it's, you can't shake it. It's, it's like tattooed on the inside of your brain. So I would say that presence is, is right up there with, uh, not to be mistaken with Led Zeppelin's album presence, but (laughs) it gets right up there (laughs) with, um, with the uh, you know the 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 strength of the compositions themselves, as uh, as David said, and um, and then obviously you know just the fact that it it re- requires just outstanding musicianship across the board. You know, I mean, it's, and 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 I think you know David made a good point too, where it's like, hey, you know, some of these, if, if it's like a one hit wonder, like a band comes out with a debut and then just kind of fades away. I mean, how how impactful of a debut is that? You know, I think when when a band is able to, they don't have to eclipse the debut, but well, they have to be able to build on it. You know what I mean? So, I think the uh, presence.
2: I, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I would, I would say I would happen to agree with you on that because you mentioned presence and you mentioned Kiss, and nowhere on this list or really any list do you see Kiss's first album mentioned. So you, it it really is the well, marriage of that presence and the music because if you don't have both those things. You know, it's, it's it's not quite the same. That's a very good point, Paul.
1: That, that's exactly what I was going to say, Ian, is, you know, you don't think about, when you think about Kiss, you think about their songs from like five albums in, you know, right. you don't think about their debut. And even the Beatles, mm. like that first record of the Beatles, I can't listen to it. It's, you got to get me to like rubber soul and like, (laughs) you know, you got to get me to the past 64, not into the pop, 65, you know, I can't, the pop rock, when they, when they shifted to being what I, for lack of a better term, like the musicians, musicians, where they were just like, Hey, let's write music and not just something that can go on the radio. Um, they, for me wrote better music. So I think it's a combination, you know, um, I think we, you mentioned influence. Um, I think, uh, taking influence and then becoming an influence. So how how many how many uh, copycats do you have? How did you create a new subgenre? Did you kill off a subgenre, or
3: know? did you elevate it? Right. I mean, take More Van Halen's it. debut, right? I mean, yeah. I, I, this is before Sammy joined the band, obviously. But Running with the Devil, Eruption, You Really a, Got Me, Ain't Talking About Love, Jamie's debut. crying. It's an incredible debut.
4: Hmm.
1: They t- yeah, they they took hard rock and elevated it to something we hadn't heard before. Yeah, and I think. I'm not going to compare the two side by side, but I think you mentioned um appetite for destruction. It almost leveled up or tried to level up what Van Halen did by taking that sound to the next level, whether or not you agree with that or not. But like that, I think that was the stepping stone kind of thing. And I think when you think about you mentioned Boston, you mentioned La Zeppelin, we've mentioned Kiss, we've mentioned the Beatles. Um, you throw in some some Clash, you know, yeah. uh Sex Pistols, that's where you got the Pearl Jam thing and they created this new thing and I'll, I'll, I'll talk to that versus, you know, you mentioned nevermind, even though that wasn't their debut, but I mentioned that in a bit when we could talk more specifically about these, these two records. Um, but yeah, I I think presence is a thing. I think creating a new subgenre is a thing. I think obviously David, to your point, the songs have to be great. You mentioned Boston's first record, literally every song on that record is amazing. I know it's only eight songs, so the the the, uh, the betting average is easier. Um, but if you don't have at least one massive hit and like two, three, four more songs where even a casual music fan goes, "Oh, I've heard that song. Yeah, it's a cool song." Like you know, a twelve-year-old hearing some nineties rock song, like, "Oh, my dad plays that song. I like that song. It's fun." you know like that, that kind of thing like oh you can get somebody from like three generations away to recognize a song and be like kind of into it that's a thing to me that that that's an elevator and so when we, as we pivot to these two records i'm going to spit out a couple of stats for both records here um 10 debuted on august 27th 1991 its peak US Billboard position was 2. It's, it has sold to this point, I believe around 16 million albums. Shake Your Money Maker from The Black Rose came out February 13th, 1990, peak position of 4 has sold at least 5 million. Guys, where where do these two records stack up? As we as we talk about what a good debut is in our terms, and you think about what Steven wrote and what he thinks are the terms of what makes a great debut. And I think we're kind of all on the same page when it comes to the one and done's of the world. It's like, yeah, that's a great album. Technically it's a debut, but it's also their last one. So does that, does that detract when they don't have anything after it? I don't know. Obviously these bands have done more and we'll get on to how they um, reacted to the success of their records. But just general ballpark, out-of-the-gate, gut reaction. Ian, I'll start with you. Where do these two albums kind of sit um, as far as debuts go? They're both... I mean,
2: obviously, Shake Your Money Maker is largely important to me, given that I host a Black Crows podcast with David. But For sure. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> it's... it. Shake Your Money Maker is the album that has, you know what, arguably their two biggest hits, which is She Talks to Angels and their cover of Hard to Handle. And those are songs that, you know... The last couple of years, they've been doing the anniversary of Shake Your Money Maker you know, on tour. And, and those are the songs that are instantly recognizable to the, to the widest body of people. You know, The people that, that know those songs aren't necessarily like us, that know every nuance of the band. And Shake Your Money Maker was a very strong debut, but it kind of it established the Black Crows as their own entity. There was nobody really around like them at the time. And it's a record that was influential later. You saw its influence later. People like, uh, I think Stephen Hyde mentions Jason Isbell listened to mm-hmm. it when he was young. So you see that influence later. Whereas 10 to me, not only was it, it still continue to be influential, but it was influential right out of the gate. It launched up movement, you know, and that's, that's what 10 always was to me. I still remember the first time I heard 10 I had on cassette and everything, you know, and, uh, that was just, wow, what is this? This is something that's not like anything I've heard on the radio before. And, and, and that, that changed music instantly. And that's very cool too. And I think they both have their place in the canon of rock.
1: Paul, the, the debut of these two records. Um, and we obviously we think about what's come since, um, did they set the table for the next generation of rock and roll? And if so, yeah you in uh, Ian, you mentioned um some of the bands that kind of spawned from the Black Rose. I think about some of, some of the garage rock, I think actually spawns from that some of like the Black Keys kind of shit. Like mm. some of that is really that that dirt, that dirty Southern rock and just fucking. you know, like that, that that to me, that speaks from that 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 doesn't happen without a black Rose kind of sound making that more popular because blues blues rock was its thing, but it wasn't mainstream. I think feel like Black Rose kind of made mainstream. Paul, do you buy into that? Do you, do you think they elevated the sound?
3: I don't think either album elevates the sound as much as it does. Uh, it, it perfects what I would call the art of reestablishing authenticity. Mm-hmm. I say that because, uh, well here, like uh, you, look, uh, you think about that entertainment weekly, uh, review of shake your moneymaker where, uh, they said the black crows are to early Rolling Stones what Christian Slater is to the young Jack Nichols. Uh, self-conscious imitation, but fine enough in its own right. Authentic bluesmen these crows will never be, but their sheer energy earns them the right to trash it up. How, how do you listen to, to Chris Robinson's voice and, and think that this is imitation, right? I mean, this, it, there are an, plenty of Mick Jagger wannabes. Chris Robinson is not one of them. I mean, there's an authenticity to the sound. And, and look, people, people sniff out fake. You know what I'm saying? Like the, mm-hmm. there's a reason why Creed is Creed. There's a reason. <laughs> and like, I'm not in the business of like trashing bands, but I'm mean, at the end of the day. I think that, you know, that's a band that would be the first to tell you like, it, we didn't try to go out there and reinvent the wheel. I mean, I, I don't listen to the black crows and think to myself, God, this is so derivative of blah, because it isn't, there's an authenticity to that sound. I don't listen to Pearl Jam's 10 and think of all of the influences that Pearl Jam has cited you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't hear Neil Young. I don't hear um, Van Halen. I don't, I mean, you know, I don't hear the Ramones. I mean, these are all bands that had major influences. I don't even hear uh, Mother Love Bone, to be quite frank with you. I mean, it's, it's a major departure from so much of, of, of who these guys were, because when, when you get the synergy together, there's a, uh, there's this birth of authenticity and, and that's where that presence kind of it gets spawned from um you know the, the the black crows weren't always the black crows they were uh what was it something crow garden Mr. Crow's Garden thank you, yeah. thank you.
0: which and they 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 were more replacements in REM when right? they were that and yeah. that's my point, yeah.
3: right yeah. and so i think and just like with radiohead you know eventually you know which obviously uh, you know okay computer and um today and uh, Kid A. I mean, th- those albums were were you know third and fourth, respectively, in in the catalog. But I do think that when you when you find that authenticity of voice as a group, it's it really establishes who you will be for the large you know majority of your career. And in some cases, you know, a band like The Black Crows or or a band like uh, Pearl Jam, they they find it really early on, perhaps in, even in a debut. Whereas other bands kind of find it a few albums in, you know. And I, without a doubt, you know, when I listen to Shake Your Money Maker, I hear something very genuinely authentic. And uh, and I think that's why it stands the test of time, because it's not an imitation. It's not derivative. People sniff that stuff out. You know, it would not have the legacy that it does if it was what that review said that it was. And, you know, Paul,
1: we, we've we talked about um, we've started going down the path of some of the covers that Pearl Jam does and and how some of the songs they do um sort of have become kind of theirs in a sense. I, the the most obvious one is Crazy Mary because I don't think anybody really heard that song from Victoria Williams before Pearl Jam did it. That's how I've always felt about hard to handle. And that's an Otis fucking Redding song. That's not somebody we've never heard of before. It's Otis Redding. And somehow for me, that's a Black Crowes song because they they did it in a way that was supremely them. It was authentically them, and to make that a single from a, from a record to have the balls to do that and say, "Hey, yeah, this isn't a song we wrote, but guess what? It's really fucking good." And people <laughs> go, "Holy shit, this is really good!" And it, it's almost like a like an entry point. It's like a gateway drug to the rest of that album. For at least for me, it was, and then it was. Uh, Twice as hard, angels, like all all that shit, and the whole album all of a sudden blows your mind because you don't you're kind of like gateway drugged into it. Do you think that was David like a a wise move to ch- to throw a, a, an Otis Redding cover everyone out of the gate, or do you think that that's just the authentic version of what Chris and Rich and the whole guys and Gorman were doing at the time? And it's like, we can do this. This is what we are. We are elevating our influences
0: to the next level. My understanding, it was the last song recorded and Chris didn't want to do it (laughs) because he didn't want to be compared to Otis Redding. And here we're going to put a single out and we're going to, it's going to be a cover song. Now, from my understanding, hard to handle was not that well-known as a Otis Redding song. So, um, you know, you have that going for you, but that, They were they were a machine on that first album because you had Rick Rubin signing them. And I don't think they had a lot of say so, to be honest with you, in in what happened with it. Uh, I do think it's, you know, Chris had to have his arm twisted and we've heard that from numerous people in the band. So I'm going to go with what they say to do that. I can't remember. Ian, that wasn't the first single. Jealous Again was the first one, wasn't it? I, you know, I get a little lost in the order of the singles on that, but I think you're right. So, uh, yeah, he put that out. And the thing with that is you get, you know, you can get the girls with that one. Cause that's a fun one to dance to. And I also think it called back maybe to people like my parents when yeah. they heard that, you know, so you're, you're going two generations in, but definitely their pocketbook was happy that they put that out yeah. because, uh, you know, I could I could never hear the song again and be perfectly okay with it. I'm honestly not a fan of I'm not a, I wouldn't uh, say I'm not a fan. But purse. I'm but I'm <laughs> just uh you know, it's it does it has never done a whole lot for me, but it's so funny when you see him now, it's kind of a canned routine. He's especially when he plays in the south, he goes, This is from a boy up the road in Macon, Georgia. This is Otis Reddings, hard to handle. But uh yeah, I mean it worked for him. If if it were me, I probably wouldn't have released it. It Early was the on. second single,
1: by the way. Yeah, okay. Also, again, was the first one. Yeah.
0: yeah. So, I mean, the second single's okay. You know, back in that time, I think I'm I'm 46. I'm a couple years older than you guys. There was a there was a formula. All right, the first song was a rock song. It was an anthemic song, mm-hmm. catchy chorus. All right, you just got the knuckleheads like me drawn in. All right, we got to go get the ladies. The next was the ballad, ballad. or the power ballad, and yeah. then the third one was something kind of in between, and it was just absolutely cookie cutter. Everything came out like that. Crows didn't do that. They waited. Arguably, She Talks to Angels is the biggest song on that album. And they waited a while to put that was one the out. the fourth one. Yeah. After Twice as Hard. Yeah. Yeah. The thing is, that album stayed on the charts so long. It had amazing staying power. And I always, I told Steve Gorman this, I think um, it's a miracle that album was successful. Because like I said, I'm a couple years older than you guys. It was, you had Bon Jovi, You had, you know, Warren and Skid Row. People laugh at Warrant and Skid Row, but Skid Row had a number one album with Slave for the Ground. It's the first heavy metal album to ever debut at number one. So it's selling a lot of copies. You also had the rise of things like Whitney Houston. You were starting to see hip hop with uh, Public Enemy coming around and LL Cool J uh, and stuff like that. There was no lane for them to go in, which if you look at who they toured with, at first, ZZ top right, didn't they get well, fired from that? Well, they, yeah, they so got well,
3: because the that got thing.
0: <laughs> they got put, which was which was planned by the way, they got put like on tours with Metallica in Europe and Monsters stuff of like Rock, that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But yeah. then they come back and in their first year, they open go on tour with Robert Plant, Aerosmith, Smith, and ZZ Top. So you've drawn in the people that are 40 and 45 at that point, which I thought yeah. was brilliant marketing strategy on them. And that also you're opening for Robert Plant. Robert Plant doesn't need the black crows to sell tickets. aerosmith doesn't. So you're getting the nod from the people above yeah. you in the so it's kind of like they're they they got hazed a little bit and then once they got in, they were in the club. And hard to handle that wouldn't have happened without that. So I mean you can't look back on it and say it was a mistake.
1: I mean I think about um when you two took Pearl Jam to Europe, you 2 didn't hmm. need Pearl Jam. Yeah. But Pearl Jam started doing quite well out there. <clears throat> and that was the tour that, you know, the summer of, of, 92 and Jeremy coming out. You talk about releasing of singles, you know, alive was the first single mm. and it was the, the big anthemic thing. And it, it did well. Se- second, single was even flow, not a ballad. Right. Did okay. Did okay. Third single, Jeremy about a kid shooting himself in his classroom. Superstardom. Here we go. Like <laughs> that didn't fit the bill, but I think that, it, it was right. only a year, to two year, to two years later from the release of *Shake Your Money Maker* and the ending ish of, or I guess the waning of the hair metal scene. So then the question is, where does each band go from there? How how do you mm-hmm. take a debut as strong and the li- by the way, the, not only as strong but the life cycle? You're talking about. Shake Your Money Maker. How long were they on the road for? Two years?
3: Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah.
1: That's, that's a long time.
3: Well, when that's you a have, long time. When you have authenticity and presence, you can go just about anywhere. I mean, Led Zeppelin had, you know, their debut had three covers on it. You know, Baby yeah. I'm Gonna Leave You is a, you know, and Braden song from the 50s, I think. And, uh, you know, You Shook Me and I Can't Quit You Baby are uh, Willie Dixon songs, you know, old school American blues musicians. So, and that's a third of your debut album. One third of that album there are covers, you know, but I mean, they, the follow up was off the charts, right? So, I mean, I, I think, you know, Pearl Jam in, in a similar vein, as, as Supernova as 10 was, uh, you know, many people would argue that Pearl Jam actually was able to take it a step further with Versus. So, and, and I mean, there are many Pearl Jam fans that would cite Versus as their best album, um, you know, so it's, I, I, I think that you can, w- when you have, when you have that authenticity, it's, you're really just getting started. You're just beginning to tell your story. Um, and, I, and I think that's, that's the key. You know what I mean? When, when you're trying to be derivative, when you're trying to you know, write what sells, I think that's where you kind of get left behind. Um, but n- nobody listened to 10 and thought derivative. I, at least I didn't. Uh, I mean, I certainly didn't think that... I mean, I didn't. I don't remember listening to "Shake Your Money Maker" in 1990 when it came out. I think I, I actually discovered it a year or two later. But uh, I remember thinking to myself that it was, it was just unique and it was just different. It wasn't. It, it led me to what David had said. It wasn't what I was hearing on the radio all the time. Mm. You know what I'm saying? It's not what I was seeing pumped into my face by the record labels.
1: Somehow, as a 10 year old in 1992, I, I think I had three or four CDs that were in rotation. 10. Um, Aerosmiths, uh, 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 no, the other one, the, um, get a grip. Maybe it was 93. Yeah, it was Um, ninety-three. Shake your money maker. As a 10 year old, these these aren't, I mean, 10, yeah, 10 was on the radio, but I didn't really know what the radio was. I mean, I, I, it was on, but I I didn't think about it as a vehicle for like promotion. I was like, Oh, that's a song. Cool. Like I was influenced by that per se, but I, I somehow i maybe it was Columbia house for know Remember that? <laughs> you know, you know, yeah, yeah. one get 12 more for a cent. And yeah. I think I was just like, oh, cool. What is this? And then that, that was, that was my rotation as a, as a 10 year old. And you think about the staying power of those records. How do you think? I mean, we talked about how it, it you, you take a lifetime to write your debut. So when you have a, a record, as strong as moneymaker as strong as 10 to follow that up to follow that up, because because think about it. If they're on the, on the road for two years and Pearl Jam was on the road for two years, I think as well. And the record company is like, Oh, uh, we've got to capitalize, got to capitalize. Then you're writing on the tour bus, you're recording, you know, the two week gap you have between Europe and Asia, or maybe like in between dates on a tour. And so the, 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 the pressure when you have a massive debut is even stronger to follow that up. And yet you've got Southern harmony and you've got verses. how the hell, do, how does that happen? How do you, how do you manage to elevate yourself or to find another gear in a sense?
2: I think both bands did a very similar thing is they toured very extensively on their first record and found their, perhaps maybe their, their more true voice while doing that touring and writing the follow up material i mean yeah shake your money Maker is a strong debut and it's the the most commercially successful but the album that's the best representation of the black crows at their peak is the southern harmony musical companion it's just it's it's a lot more raw it's the the song it's it's a it's almost a perfect rock record mm. and they so they took all of that everything they learned on the road and playing you know 350 dates and and everything they they learned from the people they opened for what to do what not to do all that culminated into the recording of southern harmony and i think that the very same thing is true of, of verse to be honest with you um that seems like that's when like both debut records for both of these bands aren't in line with anything else in their catalog as far as i'm concerned
3: you're right yeah you
2: know and 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 verse to me is when pearl jam started sounding like pearl jam at least the, the Pearl Jam you would come to know over the years. Ten is kind of an anomaly. Shake Your Money Maker is kind of an anomaly in in the, in the in, when looking at the entire catalog.
1: Do you think, David, that you know when you have that debut and it's so big uh, and popular, and there's multiple singles, and you're touring for two years, and everybody starts recognizing the band as, oh, these are the songs. This is the band. This is what they sound like. This is what they're trying to say. You almost, and it's not the band's fault. And it's not the fans fault for thinking this, but like your typecast as like, this is the sound because what else do you have to go off? of? You know, it, it, there's no, there's no harm to foul, but when you're trying to either elevate or, you know, when you're touring for two years and you're bunking with these guys and you think about the guys in Pearl Jam, you know, they they knew Eddie for a fucking week and they've got, you know, half the songs are a mother, love bone demos that, you know, didn't come to pass. And some of is the new stuff. And, you know it's it's a smattering and I, and I and i don't know but i have to imagine that the black crows kind of found their ceilings in a, in a, maybe in a similar way but it takes that touring to really solidify what the true sound of that band is and i know it's difficult for the crows because they've had 22 members over the years but at the time you're still you you know the group is what it was and you're finding what the sound truly is by touring and that's why they always say you know, we're not going to sign you, even if your songs are good, until you've toured a number of months to really hone what you are and to find out what you really are. And so I wonder if it's necessary to have a great debut in order to have a great sophomore, because then you find out what you truly are. Do you think that's true?
0: Could be. I think they they both approached it differently. So Halfway through the Moneymaker tour cycle, they fire Jeff Cease and bring in Mark Ford. Mm. And like Steve Gorman will say, when Mark Ford came in, a different band, and they bring Ed Harshian, who was the touring keyboard player for James Cotton, who everybody in the band says the greatest musician they ever played with. And they played with Jimmy Page, they played with Robert Plant. Um, so they bring them in and they're touring. And one of the things the Crows do is, even back then, they were playing songs. On that tour that they'd never recorded yet or songs that would be reworked into uh, other songs. And I, I have to brag here for a second. Johnny Colt from the Black Crows came to my house a month ago and hey. we had people from all over the country flying and he took uh, photographs when he was in the band and he gave me a photo and he said, "That's Chris. That's Rich. That's two acoustic guitars, and that's the producer George Traculius. The first notes of Southern Harmony were written right then. I Want you to have this picture, wow. uh, which is just like, ah, oh, can't Man. believe that. Anyway, the Crows were were just killing it on the road, and they went straight from the road to the studio. They knocked out Southern Harmony beginning to end thirteen days. All right, that, and that I don't think at the time, yeah, yeah, and I don't think they cared that much at, if." If we know Chris the way that people have told us he is, they didn't care about what uh, what it sounded like as far as like, did it fit in with Shake Your Moneymaker? Whereas I feel like everything I've read with um, Pearl Jam was that that Eddie had this immense pressure on him to follow it up but then he didn't want it to sound that way and he didn't want it to sound contrived because like didn't he go live like in homeless for a while trying to come up with the lyrics or something like that yeah
1: he wanted to feel uncomfortable because they were at a very nice facility in marin county uh north of san francisco yeah and uh he wanted to feel uncomfortable to force authenticity out and so he was sleeping in his truck he was sleeping in like this like sauna um, which is i I guess where he wrote the music for uh, mm-hmm. elderly woman. But yeah, they, to your point, what you're trying to get, at, the the sonics, the production of the of the record, and and this is the reason why we got the Redux version of ten many, many years later because the sound of the time was the big reverb and all the. All the uh, not, not, it wasn't necessarily overproduced, but that's, I guess, the best word to, to do it. They wanted a raw sound. They were a raw band. Go on YouTube, look at Pink Pop 92. Look at, uh, you know, Drop in the Park. Look at any of those concerts on YouTube. Um, you know, the, the, the mural amphitheater show 91. Like they are just raw, uncut rock and roll. And they wanted that on record. And so that's what they, they got with Brendan O'Brien. Uh, and but by the way, that's the beauty of these two bands is is that that's the cross link, Brendan O'Brien, um, and that's the sound that they got in verses, and it was very intentional. And I find it interesting the dichotomy of of the two records um, having the approach that they had.
0: Well, you know, the the, the on that second Pearl Jam album, they went from kind of controlled anger, I thought, on Ten to just unbridled fury. Yeah. On the side, su- I mean Animal is a vicious. I mean, that's just a vicious song. And it was everything was a whole lot more raw and I thought more aggressive sounding. And you had a more natural drum sound, which I think is one of the things that makes 10 so dated. But I, I think they definitely could changed it because I remember watching them play Animal with Neil Young on MTV before oh, yeah. it like really came out. And that's like a top two or three music performance I've ever seen in my life. And, I, and, cause, you know, and he'd cut his hair. It was a lot shorter. Mm-hmm. He just stood there in that army jacket. Didn't really move any. And uh, I think it was just s- showing everybody, hey, this isn't going to be alive, is isn't going to be even flow. We're, we're our own people now.
1: Paul, do you think it's... When you're making your second record, do you think it's better to... Have a record that does fine, and maybe that gives you some motivation. I, I, you know, this is maybe our last chance to put out a great record, and so maybe it forces you to to really grip and find the best possible things so you're going to perfection perfectionize. You're going to perfect um, whatever you p- create for the second record, or have a record that blows up, becomes massive, and gives you some innate confidence in that whatever you write is the right thing. Which, which, which way do you think is the, is the easier way to go? Because obviously these two bands with their massive records, it obviously gave them confidence to do what they, you know, truly quote unquote wanted to do. But is that the easier way, easier path for a better sophomore effort?
3: Well, I, I think the difference is that, you know, when you, when you think about Shake Your Moneymaker, I mean, the Black Crows were the Black Crows. They were a band, Um, you know. Pearl Jam, they they were basically Mother Love Bone reeling on on, on the heels of Andy Wood's overdose. So that, you know, Eddie was basically auditioning to sing for the band, courtesy of a Jack Irons mixtape. So when you start thinking about the second album, I mean, I'm going to quote Stone Gossard here. He said, uh, you could tell when the music wanted to change just by the way Eddie was singing. I think we allowed things on verses to develop in a more natural band oriented sort of way, rather than me bringing in a bunch of stuff that was already arranged. I mean, and that's key, you know, I mean, it, it was essentially a bunch of, a, a lot of pre-arranged material that Eddie was essentially adding lyrics to on his own in isolation. Uh, whereas with the second album, we, we finally get to see what happens when Pearl jammed the band who spent months on the road touring together who developed a brotherhood who had forged their own identity versus a, is a reflection of what Pearl Jam could be. Whereas I think 10 is kind of a, uh, is more of a, um, it's like what happens when you get all these uber talented musicians, that, you know, argue, I don't want to say the peak of their powers, but these uber talented musicians and you just kind of like cobble them together, like, uh, you know, from afar and it just, it becomes like a correspondence style album. And, and it was raw because it had to be, there's a nakedness and a vulnerability to that, the, those performances, because I don't, they didn't know each other very well. Yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, it's, it, you know, when did the black crows form like 85 or something like that? Or, or they I mean, started they had,
0: playing like 87 or so when yeah, they were in okay. high school.
3: Yeah. So I mean, they, they had a number of years of just mm-hmm. kind of playing together before. Plus two of the members are brothers. So exactly. Yeah. All right. So I think you know, it's a little different with a, a, a debut like like ten. So I think when Versus came out, we we got to s- experience the the band um truly as a band, you know what I mean, in in a traditional sense. so uh i I feel like I'm meandering here. Am I answering the question? R- remind me again. I, I, I think I, just I, I've what, lost the forest for the trees here. Uh,
1: so. <laughs> I was just going <laughs> to say, is is it as a musician, in order to make a great second record? Is it easier to have a decently selling, you know, successful record to, um, I guess, feed the hunger to perfect the next thing because it might be your last shot at a big record or to get a great second record is, is a great to have, Is easier to have a, an amazingly successful first record to give you the confidence and maybe more runway to do whatever the hell you want.
3: Both sound terrifying to me. <laughs> I, I, I can't imagine being in that situation. I think there's a tremendous amount of pressure that a band would be experiencing in in the shoes of either scenario. Well, look frankly. at hoodie and the Blowfish.
1: <laughs> yeah, Jesus Christ! I mean, some of these records are so massive. How do yeah. you follow it up?
3: That's what I mean. You know, so it's like, what what, what do you do when you're like the the biggest band on the planet? And, and and you just wanted you You literally made an album just as an excuse to go out and play in front of people. And mm-hmm. now you are, <laughs> you've gone full super, supernova. So like, yeah. how, how do you re- respond to that?
1: Well, the <laughs> Black Crow Shaker Your Moneymaker on Steven's list was 88 mm. and 10 was 43. He has a lot of, um, what's the right phrase? Uh, Really obscure rock, that's the nicest way of putting it. Uh, on his list, a lot of one and done's, a lot of indie alternative records that no one's heard of. Like, he's got the shins on there, like in like 90. I'm like, okay, really? The shins are fine, but
2: come on, right? (laughs) One thing I will tell you about Stephen Hyden, though. He means every pick on the list. He really. Oh, is of course a, he does. Eclectic, you know?
1: <laughs> That's the one thing about Steven is I, I totally buy into what he's selling me, and I and I and I love him for it. Uh, some of his choices, though, it's like, okay, you 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 have you've sat in your own closet for long enough, and you've smelled your own farts long enough that <laughs> these 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 elaborations ring true for you very well, but maybe not for so many other people, but. When he knows what he's talking about, he knows what he's talking about. So, do we think?
3: Good. Can I do a brief segue here, Jason? Please. We had a, a cross text message thread happening yes. about that article, and I think uh, the, the the comment that resonated the most with me was the one about Oasis. Oh yeah, because uh, you know, I think that sometimes that there are bands that strike a chord. And again, like a lot of people like, Oh, you know, this is derivative Beatles. No, it wasn't. Again, there was an authenticity there. Um, and I, I, I goes back to, to, I think what, what Steven was maybe trying to do, which was, you know, if you look at his top, his top five, he's got, you know, Leonard Cohen's songs of Leonard Cohen is, is, is I'm sorry, that's four. Uh, what was five uh, notorious B.I.G. ready to die. 94. Then the Leonard Cohen album, uh, number three was uh, Patti Smith's Horses, right? His, his number two is The Velvet Underground, Velvet Underground and Nico. And uh, the number one debut album, I, I, I mean, Jimi Hendrix Exper- Experience, Are You Experienced, 1967. You talk about like an introduction to presence, raw authenticity. I, I think there's a theme here. You know what I mean? I think there, there, there's something that is is very common there. Now, a lot of these albums, I mean, you could... Yeah, you know, like shake them up in a jar, and whatever order they come out oh, in, yeah, there's a yeah. compelling argument for why that one is the, is the best debut. But I, I think the one thing they all have in common was that 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 uh, you know motif of authentic voices. You know, because it's it's I, I don't know how you think of Jimi Hendrix and not think of anything other than Jimi Hendrix. You know yeah. what I'm saying? <laughs> it's it's so, it's not derivative. So
1: I, I think I think you've nailed it. I, you know, it's 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 a sound that. Maybe you've heard of, but maybe it's only in your mind based off of what you've already listened to. You go, I know I've heard this sound before, but it's somehow different and it's, it's a different level and it speaks to me because it's, it's coming from their heart and from their soul. And I can tell, and there's no bullshitting here. And, you know, like I said, I I had that black crow's CD when I was a kid. Um, I really enjoyed it. It didn't hit me the same way as 10 did which is why we have a Pearl Jam podcast and y'all have a Black Rose podcast. But like, there's a reason why those two stuck around for a long time. And there's a reason why Steven has both of them on his list. And I think there's a reason why there aren't too many bands that have podcasts about them. And yet here we are with Pearl Jam and Black Rose having podcasts that are pretty darn good. I I find, I I think the debuts are are massive. I think maybe they should be higher, both of them on the list. But, um, (laughs) I think it's an interesting conversation and I'm really happy that you guys were able to come on the show and, and talk about the, uh, the, the juxtaposition of both of these debuts. Um, Cause they're huge. They're huge and they're fun.
2: Well, they're, they're unbeatable and yes, they should have both of them. I think, especially 10, believe it or not, sh- I feel should have been higher on the list just yeah. because of,
0: I think, I think moneymaker was about right. Yeah. I mean,
2: maybe a little higher, David, you know, we got to back the
0: boys here, you know what <laughs> I mean? But, uh, so but here's the here, here but here's the thing when those two came out and I uh, I've talked to some some people in the band about this you could see somebody wearing a cure shirt listening to shake your money maker you could see somebody wearing i don't know whatever country act was be- Garth Brooks mm. wearing a shake your money maker shirt and you could see somebody at a metallica concert wearing a black crow shirt and when ten came out I can just I cannot tell y'all, like it was a week, it was a week before 10. And then there was the week after 10 (laughs) and everybody I knew had it. And this was, this was the common thing. Have you heard this? Listen to this. Mm. And to this day, people that I grew up with, and obviously by my accent, I grew up in the South, but to this day, people (laughs) that I grew up with. Will still tell you Ten is one of their favorite bands, and they may, that literally may be the only rock band they listen to, and they'll tell you that 10's absolutely one of the favorite albums of all time. Both of these albums had appeal that pulled a little bit from different segments, and so many different segments liked it enough that like like if you went to a, a Cure concert, and saw somebody in a black crow shirt, nobody at the Cure concert's going to say a word. Same thing with Pearl Jam. And so both of them were able to appeal to a wild, wild enough audience that you just get a tenth of each little group of people, and then all of a sudden you've sold a bunch of albums. And also, that's also how a lot of people would go on to learn about other bands. Mm. Hey, what's this Mother Love Bone? You know, uh, for me and Ian, uh, we discovered a Little Feet because the Crows would cover Little Feet in concert um, and stuff like that. And just think of how many bands, though. Like you said, Victoria Williams, uh, which we had her ex-husband, Mark Olson, on our podcast one time. Yeah. Super nice guy. Um, I didn't know who she was. Never heard of her. You know? And then I, I'm like this Crazy Mary song, which I love. And I'm like, who is Victoria Williams? It's a cover song. And so both bands were also able to turn people on to other music. What is it in that New York, uh, Live from New York DVD or whatever, they play Sonic Reducer? Is that yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. never heard of sonic reducer now i have it on a playlist so uh, i think that's one of the the things that they did uh appeal to a broad group of people and then expose people to new music that they liked
1: i i think i'm going to come back to paul and just say you know authenticity plus good grooves and some sick guitar work and you're in, in a hell of a voice and you've got yourself a winning formula and let's let's just say that both bands have that in, in many spades. Hmm. And uh, we're going to have you all in again, uh, David and Ian, because this is fun talking about the best rock and roll in the business. So uh, Ian Rice, David Hudson from the State of America podcast, talking Black Crows all the damn time. Thank you for joining us.
0: Anything you guys want to plug? Um, what do we got, David? <laughs> we're, we're interviewing Eric Bobo from Cypress Hill tomorrow night. Oh yes, yeah. um, that's believe all. Believe it or not, he's all over that um, Black Crowes America album, and yeah. so uh,
2: and uh, yeah. we just did an interview with uh, author Alan Paul, who has a new Allman Brothers book coming out in July. So the our interview will be out around the time that book comes out. But that was Fantastic. actually David had to do that one solo because uh, I couldn't make it, but uh, it was a great interview. So we're looking forward to everybody hearing that, and we thank you guys for having us on as always.
1: Absolutely, State of America. Podcast wherever you listen to this or any other podcast, you should check them out. David, Ian, thank you. Thank you. Once again, thank you to Ian and David. If you haven't listened to their podcast, State of America, it's phenomenal. If you're a Black Crows fan, if you like the band, if you're interested about learning more about the band, these guys know more about the Black Crows than probably Chris and Rich, considering all the drugs they've taken.
3: Would you agree? I would agree. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean, we we talk about like you know us as Pearl Jam fans, and, and there's people that know more about the band than we do, and I have to imagine that if the, if those people spoke to like Eddie and Mike and Matt and and Stone and Jeff, they'd be like, God, I don't remember any of that. And then you know people are spouting off dates and and facts, and it's like, how right. do you know these things? <laughs> and that's what these guys too. Yeah. These guys know. The Black Crow's history, uh, and they have great takes, and I love it, and uh, they're, good. they're good guys. So Ian and David, State of Morka Podcast, check them out wherever you listen to podcasts. Okay, we're going to move on. Got to do it. Lyric of the Week time. Here we go. All right, Lyric of the Week. We're talking debuts. This is the last track remaining. Off of ten for us, it's oceans. Hold on to
4: the train, the currents will shift, glide me to.
1: All right, Paul. Oceans. The first, first verse here. Short one. Short little ditty. What do you got?
3: I think it's a beautiful, tender moment off ten. Feels like a precursor to what we would see from Eddie uh, later on in the catalog. Um, you know, you look at these lyrics. Uh, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, at the time that you know Eddie was writing this to Beth, uh, his wife at the time. I don't remember if they were married well, girlfriend they, then they, they were girlfriend at the Wife time, later. Yeah. Um, but you know, you get the, the beautiful ocean imagery, just a hallmark of Eddie Vedder's lyrics. And, uh, this idea of, of kind of riding a wave to someone and, um, uh, just the distance in between. And you think of these crests in, in a wave and, uh, the distance in between each, each crest and, uh, kind of waiting to be carried over to the next one where you, know, you, you will have the opportunity to, to touch that, that someone that really has made this indelible impact on you. So I think it's, it's beautiful imagery. It's, it's, it's poetry in a lot of ways. And uh, I think Eddie did a great job of channeling something he loves into a song about someone he loves.
1: Yeah. I mean, he, he, he joked before about this being a little love song about a surfboard. At least he says that on on the yeah. plug. Um, I think it, it's a simple reminder that no matter what troubles befall us, we're stronger when we're when we're together. Um, yeah. It's simple as that, and I, I don't mean necessarily together in a physical sense, because obviously this song is talking about what happens when we're apart. And I think good times, bad times, things things will change. They'll shift, as he writes um, and sings. But if we stick together and hold on, we can overcome anything. And and challenging love over physical um, distances comes up a few times in Pearl Jam's music, and and this is probably the first instance of that. You think about "You Are," you think about "Force of Nature," um, and others. You know, Ed, even as he jokes about his love for his surfboard, he he's he does so eloquently um, use his favorite metaphor, as you said, the ocean. Illustrate the power love can have even when two people are apart, and it's a theme of his and of Pearl Jam's. And one of the reasons I think the band's audience has continued to fall in love with them over and over again throughout the years is this we talked about authenticity with the guys earlier. It's you know, it, it might seem silly, especially considering the music video if you've ever seen that, <laughs> um, which is kind of cheesy and. Not the best way, but when you consider how much the ocean means to Ed and how apropos that metaphor actually is, um, I think it's a really lovely song and it fits the music perfectly. So, I love it. It's fantastic. Let's check out the best live version of the song with our live cut of the week. Live cut of the week. This song has been played how many times, Jason? Look it up. Refresh your page. This is the best part of the show. 98 times. 98 times. 67 times as an opener, according to our friends over at livefootsteps.org. Where and when is our live cut, Paul?
3: Oh, gosh. 98. Well, you know what? 28 out of those 98 happened in 1992. And, you know, I have an affinity for... Finding of the best cut from the tour of the album from which the song those comes. are the song those, those are those. Those, my self-imposed cages that I like to throw myself into. Uh, look, Den Hog, I think, in, uh, in 92 is, is an absolute stand, standout stellar performance, so we're going there.:
1: March 2nd, 1992, Den
4: Hog, Netherlands One, two, three, four. Oh! The thread the current social like me to. Stray the oceans away, wave. waves roll in my thoughts. So tide the ring, the sea will rise, please stand by the shore.
1: This show is uh, available on YouTube for you to watch as well as listen. It is one of the rare 1992 concerts in soundboard, not an official release, but it is soundboard quality. Uh, This is, this is basically, uh, you mentioned before peak your powers kind of thing, but this is like pretty much the beginning, I would say of prime 10 era Pearl Jam. You talk about the spring through the fall of 92, that yeah. leg of the 10 tour was so good. You had drop in the park at the very end of it. Just a couple of months later, you're going to have pink pop. Um, this obviously in Den hog, not too far away, just three months earlier. It's just a fantastic show and it's a fantastic performance. It, it, it's one of those songs that, um, when you get it in an intimate setting, it can really, really shine. Uh, as much as it could in, in a bigger setting and you know, this opened the show at, I, I want to say it's called the Pard P A A R D is the name of the club. Um, just, I mean, th- this song is Eddie. Yeah. The band is there. Yeah. Jeff is doing his fretless bass thing. Yeah. Stone is doing his simple, but weird chord thing you know, Dave Aperzis is doing his little, you know, fake timpani drum dealy, but like, it's all about Ed and he's soaring here.
3: He's soaring. I I would agree. You know, you use the word intimate. And I I think that this is not a, a time in Pearl Jam's career where we normally hear that word associated with Pearl Jam performances. I think it's, it's pretty, it's pretty big. It's pretty, you know, um, I don't know what the right word is but it, it's just it well, they were it's, brash they were they were unfiltered yeah, I mean it's it's it, it, it they really were you know um
1: but it I was kind of like we, the uh, the nexus of they were on their own doing clubs but they were able to play the festivals and the massive shows and th- this this audience caught them in a small club
3: yeah they they tore down the walls and roof of every venue they played in and i think you know this is one of those those moments in a show where you know they were able to tone it down, in and 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 kind of capture this this intimacy and restraint that you don't normally see at a Pearl Jam show at this time in their career, and uh, and they they do it masterfully, and I think that's exactly what the song needs, and and it, it's a moment on ten that is highlighted by those characteristics, and so to to kind of capture that. Amidst the intensity of a live show is really difficult to do, and I think they they pulled it off here very very well absolutely
1: agreed all right well there you go gang uh we hope you enjoyed this conversation uh the boys from state of America are fantastic David and Ian once again thank you to them for coming on and talking debut records I mean talk about ten you talk about shake your moneymaker if you're if you're under the age of I'm sorry, if you're over the age of like 35, 40, these two are hallmarks of your catalog. Mm -hmm. And um, to follow them up the way they did is also quite remarkable, as we discussed. So anyways, we hope you enjoy the conversation. Again, last chance, last call. If you want that Stephen Hyden book, Long Road, it's a fantastic book. Uh, Get in your review. You've got to...
3: Read that algorithm.
1: Bang. Wherever you listen to your podcasts send us a rating send us a review Um, if you're on Spotify by the way and you can't do a review just you know maybe just tweet us or put a comment somewhere on Instagram you know wherever people can see things it it just helps it helps helps. and uh, we'll pick one and uh, June 1st is the deadline and we'll pick one and you'll get a free copy and you know maybe we'll like maybe we'll choose like a runner up to get a free t-shirt or something
3: if if it's close
1: you know I like that idea we're, we're in a giving mood
3: as we it's should be. The,
1: it's the giving month of May, as you know. It's, <laughs> we're, you know, May May is that giving month, says us
3: now. So Yeah, we had the Ides of March, we had April showers, and now it's uh, May, uh, May giving, apparently.
1: Yeah. We'll <laughs> just go with that. <laughs> we'll go with that. Uh, thank you to our patrons, of course, and uh, just thank you for listening. We appreciate yeah. you coming by and, and, and telling your friends if they like Pearl Jam and like the discussion, so
3: as Batman uh, once said, tell all your friends about us. Yeah,
1: <laughs> we will be uh, right back here with you next week, and until we do, you've been listening to
3: the State of Love and Trust.